Hi everyone, welcome to the third series of the Race and Health podcast. We're partnering with the Lancet Voice podcast to discuss issues raised in the series of papers published in the Lancet in 2022 on racism, xenophobia, discrimination and health. My name is Dylan Devakuma and I'm a professor of global child health in University College London and the lead on the academic series. In today's episode, we will focus on the impact of populism and political and structural implications of this. To discuss this with me, I have three guests. Ms. Alexandra Haas, the Executive Director of Oxfam Mexico. Alexandra headed the Mexican National Council to Prevent Discrimination, and she's conducted research on migration integration policies. Uh, Next, I have Professor Gustavo Andrea Giameda Lopez Fernandez, who is a Professor of Public Policy at the Fundación Getulio Vargas. ISPI, Brazil. His research is focused on race and democracy, showing how populism has led to new ways of prejudice and discrimination, undermining democracy and the delivery of health services. And finally, Professor Martin McKee, uh, who's a professor of European Public Health and Medical Director at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and is also president of the British Medical Association. Martin has researched the two-way relationship between populism and health, showing how poor health creates a fertile ground for populism and how populist policies undermine health. So on to the episode, today we're going to look upstream, focusing on some of the structural causes of racism. Most people tend to think about how interpersonal racism affects health, um, individual acts of violence, for example. But a big part of our academic work was to look at what lies underneath. What are the reasons behind the health inequities that we see play out? One of the big driving factors underlying racial inequities is populist politics, uh, which has happened around the world. Martin, can I come to you first? Can you tell me first what populism is and why it's important for health? Well, in a way, the idea of populism is reflected in its name. It is a range of political views that emphasise the idea of the people as the font of knowledge, often contrasting them against the elite or the experts that are within the elite. Now, why is it important for health? Well, most obviously, if you're going to be discarding the views of experts, you're rejecting a large part of the scientific development since the Enlightenment. But it is a two-way relationship, as you said in your introduction. So we do know that populist leaders tend to pursue policies that are not supported by evidence. We saw that with Donald Trump and some of the views that he was promoting. We'll also hear, I'm sure, about Jair Bolsonaro, but we've seen that in many other countries. So in a way, we can see that people who are pursuing populist policies will damage the health of their populations. But on the other hand, we and others have done research showing that poor health creates fertile ground for populist politics to emerge. When people feel left behind, when they feel abandoned, when they see people dying young around them, then it is very easy for someone who is promoting a populist agenda, particularly when they're saying, I'm here to support and defend you against them being some other enemy within, in a way. Often people who look different in terms of the way they dress or the colour of their skin. You can see how easy it is to exploit, create and exploit those divisions and then come to power as a result of that. Thank you. And this is happening around the world. Gustavo, do you you want to talk a little bit about what's happened in Brazil? Oh, yeah, sure. I think uh, one of the points that you just said about this anti-establishment view, it's, it's very important to understand why populism is raising 
rising so much on many parts of the world. So, for instance, in Brazil, uh, we had the impeachment of a president, Dilma, uh, some years ago. And it was really a moment when you put everything together. So we had a terrible economic downturn, so a great recession that was uh, during for years. And at the same time, the rise of a voice that used to tell people, well, uh, you know, the establishment, they don't represent you because I am the true voice of the people. So very, 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 I think, uh, populist story. So, and he started you know, to deliver to the, to the people all the, the, the usual stories that we see in populism. So an unscience, an establishment, and politician, and politics, uh, anti-globalism. Uh, and it was very, very competent using social media, which is very, very competent. So uh, we we never know here if Trump learned with Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro learned with Trump, but probably both learned a lot together and were very, very uh, able to use social media to spread this idea that, well, we represent the people, so let me run the country because finally we, have, we will have someone of us there. And then all the populist stories follow it. Thank you. And I remember being in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, at, at that election, actually, when Bolsonaro was elected in, and just some of the divisive conversations that were happening amongst friends, usually. Alexandra, anything to add on that? Yes, I think what becomes very complicated is when institutions have been built, at least in the case of Mexico, on the basis of unfair uh, distribution of public resources. We have a health system that is different for people that have formal jobs and people that have informal jobs. And racialized people are overrepresented in the informal job market. And so there's a big criticism to hold uh, on design of public policy and assignment of resources. But the problem, and I'm looping into what Martin and Gustavo has said, is that criticism of institutions shouldn't amount to less institutions, but should go towards more and better institutions. And the problem with that is that populism is, is popular, in Mexico at least, because injustice is so deep, deeply felt. And so when institutions are criticized, although they have some good, good aspects, certainly, of course, it's not so hard to make a bad case for those institutions because they have historically replicated these unjust systems. So I think that's part of the reason why those discourses are successful. And the danger of those discourses is, again, less institutions instead of more, better, more universal, more fair institutions. Yeah, yeah, so just an add something uh, very interesting, Alison. So because Bolsonaro, when start government, one of the main policies, we could say it's an anti-institution policy. So uh, every part of the government, they try to uh, jeopardize institutions. So, and it was not just because, well, uh, uh, he chose the incomp incompetent uh, person that were not able to deliver the job. No, that's not the case. Actually, he was focusing on jeopardize institution as a target of government. So I think this is one of the most interesting part of Bolsonaro government for us that are studying uh, the political uh, side of it is that he 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 was not uh, a side effect, but actually was a target to jeopardize institutions. So I, I wonder if we can talk a little bit more about how populism relates to racism. Um, maybe describe in just a bit more detail how 
how this happens both historically and now? Well, often populist politicians are seeking to create and reinforce divisions within society. When we talk about populism being the prioritization of the view of the people, of course, we're not talking about all of the people. We're talking about some of the people, mm. typically the majority. And when people are facing economic difficulties, when they're struggling with precarious lives, it's often very tempting to blame someone else. Even though, in fact, all of the people at the bottom of the pile are suffering together, but you will get politicians who come in to seek to divide the disadvantaged between themselves to create those divisions and exploit them. And so, therefore, you do get populist politicians whipping up racism, whipping up racist stereotypes and so on. It's part of the modus operandi of gaining support for a populist program. So it's this divisiveness, right? You've got to create this, this other group who you can blame. Absolutely. And we have seen that throughout history. The other group can be have many different characteristics. Mm. And throughout history, it, it's really whoever is convenient to blame. Obviously, during the 20th century in Europe, we saw the situation with particularly the Jews in Europe, but it has been other groups at other times. Migrants today, particularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think, I think migrants are a huge target. I mean, the case of Mexicans in the US, but also the case of Central Americans and Haitians in Mexico. Um, the amazing thing is Mexico is a country that has around 32 million Mexicans abroad. We are the large, the country that has the largest migrant community outside of, of our country. And regardless of that, you would think that Mexicans, uh, by and large, would be, you know, empathetic to, to migrants. What we see in, in opinion polls is, and we, we've just conducted a study on this in Adults from Mexico, is that narratives around migration um, have a, a small group, around 7% of the population feels empathetic towards migrants. And then there's like a 10 or 12% that feels that they want to reject migrants. And then in the middle, around 80% of people don't really care. And government policies related to migrants um, don't, don't have a toll on the current or any government's popularity, right? And so people don't really care if the government attends to migrants or they don't. This is in the case of Mexico, and that makes it easy for the government to become sort of complicit with the United States to put a hold on migration of Central Americans towards the U.S. And in the case of the United States, in some constituencies, it makes the government more popular to have, uh, you know, restrictive policies. And that's something that we've been surprised by in the case of uh, the current U.S. president's migration policies, we expected him to reverse a lot of things that were done under the Trump administration, and he hasn't. And I think it's because it does take a lot of political capital that doesn't get renewed if you do positive migration policy. So that's quite shocking to me, and it feels like it makes the migration agenda very hard. And when you come to specific rights like health, it makes it very hard for governments to find public support to fund health services for migrants. And that puts them in a, in a very, very, very uh, vulnerable position. Well, in Brazil, it's, it's a very interesting case because uh, as uh, it's no longer a country that receives a lot of immigrants, so 
basically the story was an internal story. So and Bolsonaro started a strategy which was incredible and tra and tragic at the same time because uh, he chose an external threat, so the communists. And it was something absolutely crazy because there is no communist threat anywhere in the world. But he, he kept telling the people every day that the communist threat was coming. And so all left politics should be erased from the country. So, for instance, and, and when you come to the daily lives of people, so uh, policies that were helping uh, blacks to get to school, so get vaccinated, or policies that were helping indigenous people to be protected from uh, extractive policies from big companies and trying to explore iron, gold, and so on. So all of this stuff, all these policies were left policies that were part of a big communist threat. So in this indirect way, uh, all the policies that were trying to combat to decrease discrimination, prejudice in Brazil were uh, more or less abandoned during his government because in the end of the day, the government was very, very prejudiced with a lot of racism. And what, well, when it comes to the end, so I think something that was uh, a, a tragedy too is that some part of the government were including Nazis. So we had, for instance, a secretary of culture that uh, tried to play like some ministers of the Nazi government. So same kind of speech, using the same words, same pictures, something that was absolutely crazy. And in his government, all those things were allowed. I was going to say that one of the issues to remember is that if a politician dominates or controls the media, they really can have an impact in the way that people think they can create a narrative. We did a paper some years ago where we looked at the shift in the view of the Murdoch-owned Sun newspaper in 1997 in the election that brought New Labour to power when Murdoch decided to support Tony Blair. And then, of course, he reversed it uh, in 2010. And we were able to show by looking, linking the, the voting data with the and, and polling data and so on, we were able to show that there really was a link between the two. He was able to shift the voting, probably not enough on his own to actually shift the election, but he, he did make a significant contribution. And we also know from data from the United States from a very nice uh, natural experiment where Fox News was rolled out in cable between 1996 and 2000. So you can see which cities and towns were exposed to it and then relate that to voting patterns that it did have a significant link to a shift from voting from the Democrats to the Republicans. And that's why I think in recent elections, discussions about the elections in Hungary and Turkey in particular, people say, well, the elections were free, but were they fair? And the answer is really that they were not because of the control of the media by the incumbent politicians. And do you think that power is shifted towards social media now with some of the big tech companies? Yeah, I'm not sure anybody really knows what's going on with Twitter at the present, including Elon Musk. Uh, you know, he has presided over a collapse in its share price. So quite what his strategy is, uh, there, nobody really knows. The difficulty is that social media, of course, allows everybody to be a generator of knowledge. And we do know that certain messages move much quicker on social media than others. And in particular, those associated with conspiracy theories will be transmitted much more widely. What we do know is that there are many issues that are underlying that. 
So why do these populist messages get onto social media and why are they spread? And I think what we do know is that there's a combination of motives. First of all, there are people who just do have these views. They may be conspiracy theorists, they may be racist, they may be whatever, and they would be doing it anyway. And because they resonate with other people, they get into an echo chamber and it's spread. The other thing is that there are state actors that are promoting some of these messages. And in fact, we, we know with Russia, for example, in the United States, it has spread often competing messages. Um, it, it has been spreading messages which uh, support Black Lives Matter uh, and also Ku Klux Klan uh, simultaneously, but from different sources. And that is about undermining trust in democratic government. So it's looking at two constituencies that have reason or may not trust the government to begin with and, and seeks to encourage them. And then there's another group of people who are simply using the speed of the media to earn money. They've monetized it with clickbait, with links to monetized pages, or sometimes to distribute malware. But it is absolutely true that social media has made it much easier to spread some of these very divisive messages. Thank you. Gustavo, this was important in the Brazilian elections, right? Yes, of course. And I can say that by literature, we knew that uh, in the past, for, for running a president and winning an election, you, you, you must have a very big political base. And I mean with that, you have to have a lot of local governments, mayors as brokers supporting uh, and, and making people vote. Because, you know, Brazil is a country that invested a lot on, on electoral system. And so elections are considered really fair here. But what we see in the last years is that the system ended. So you no longer need mayors, you no longer need local governments in, to make you win an election. You need social media. And I think, I think Bolsonaro was the, the, well, the point where everything changed because he didn't have enough time on television, for instance. Uh, he, didn't have, he didn't have enough uh, any support, electoral support. He didn't have mayors to, uh, all around the country to tell people to vote on him. But he won the election, and basically he was, I think, the first time that the president in Brazil won election mostly based on social media. And so I think this is a turn that uh, would change forever the way elections are, uh, are won. I would say that um, from, from our point of view here in Mexico, I think the anti-establishment discourse, uh, I mean, this current government is supposed to be a left-wing populist government, but it uh, has a lot of right-wing policies, anti-establishment and, you know, the um, shortening of budgets for public services, that type of thing. Um, but I would say there's a there's a couple of things that happen. One is is this, um, this idea for people, and it's very much related to cash transfers, which are not bad in, in and of themselves they have become a substitute for public services and that's very problematic because on the one hand you know you you can't live and have all of your services through cash transfers because you don't get enough cash and secondly it really erodes the relationship between the citizens and the government where citizens are not used to holding the government accountable for the service and so the expectation is, you know, just make the deposit and I'll figure out how I get my services, which is really bad, the human rights. But on the other hand, is the misinformation around COVID, for example, and COVID vaccination. And again, that falls on top of experiences of, you know, Mexican indigenous communities having been um, 
unduly and involuntarily sterilized in you know the 80s and 90s and so what we we saw uh, right now with the covid vaccination is that because the communication wasn't great and the rollout was quite quick actually you know uh, but not but not accompanied by good communication a lot of people from indigenous rural communities didn't approach the covid uh, vaccine sort of rollout because they were they received information through social media that they would be sterilized and because they had been sterilized in the 1980s and 90s that that's where the misinformation falls on top of previous experiences so i just feel it, it it's a sort of a it's a loophole where it's not that people believe misinformation it's that people have had negative experiences and when they have that misinformation makes sense to them can we talk a little bit more about how populism uh, relates to health outcomes uh, what what are the ways in which this happens most obviously populist politicians because of their anti-elite stance and therefore their rejection of scientific expertise will make decisions that are unlikely to be consistent with what we know about what has to be done to promote public health we saw that very clearly with Donald Trump where he was talking about using ultraviolet light or bleach his promotion of chloroquine which had all sorts of consequences ivermectin and so on so that's the the very obvious way in which uh, you you see this you also see populist politicians using the divisions they've created in society to undermine support for collective action to promote public health social welfare and so on so therefore you're undermining the social determinants of health. Thank you. And I, I suppose my feeling is that populist politicians didn't do very well in the COVID pandemic. Is that right? I think that's generally true, but there are a few exceptions. I think you could say that Erdogan in Turkey actually did reasonably well. Hungary did reasonably well during the first wave, but not subsequently. Uh, so it doesn't correlate directly, but there were certainly a number of politicians like Jair Bolsonaro, Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, who did very poorly, at least in the initial waves. And and I suppose that goes a little bit back to the lack of institutions or the belittling of institutions. Well, the institutions may even be strong as they were in the United Kingdom, but they're just ignored. As we're recording this episode, there is a debate going on about the decision that was made by the finance minister, the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, where he promoted a policy which encouraged people to go to restaurants. And we know that that was strongly linked to the, a, a rise in cases. That was done by ignoring the scientific advice that was there that he could have drawn upon. In the case of Mexico, it was exactly the same case of policies that weren't uh, taking into account recommendations, worldwide recommendations. For example, the president refused to wear a face mask, which was, you know, really, really bad for, for the population and, and for, as an example. But, um, but on the other hand, also, I, I would like to say that we need to look at economic policy because, you know, health-wise, uh, the pandemic had, a, had an impact, but also economically-wise. So, one of the things that did happen in Mexico, and I guess it was hard to prevent it because of the way the economy works, a lot of people live off of what they make during the day. And if there was total lockdown, then they would just have, you know, they wouldn't have any income for everyday survival. 
And so I just want to bring in to the to the mix uh, a real problem, which is austerity measures. In the case of Mexico, at least this particular government believes that that the macroeconomic balance is mo- much more important than whatever happens at the micro level. And so they have kept uh, the austerity measures in place ever since the pandemic started. And that ha- that meant a lot more deaths, a lot more poverty, a lot more people in extreme poverty because of the austerity measures. So I think the Brazilian case is a very interesting one because, well, we have this anti-science view, which is, of course, uh, led to an idea that, well, those scientists, they are trying to help to uh, uh, stop the pandemics and actually are the enemies and probably COVID is it's, it's a threat, they, something that they were the responsible for. And I think this led to uh, something that I think that we, we, we must understand better. It's a kind of medicine populism. So uh, a, a very large group of doctor physicians that uh, try to actually be unscience too. So they were using Instagram and social media. Uh, they kept telling people, well, actually what you have to do is this, it's simple. So we are part of this voice of the people. So this is a very interesting thing that happened here in Brazil. So I think the kind of uh, populist in medicine. Uh, a second thing that's important to the Brazilian case is that, well, uh, here, uh, usually there is a, a large literature that shows that the president is real, it's really, it's really accountable for the economy. And usually local governments, state governments and mayors and governments, uh, they are in charge of the health service. So Bolsonaro played a kind of blame avoidance strategy. He divided people saying that, well, you have to choose health or economy. And if we don't choose economy, in the end, we'll be worse because a strong economy can help us go after COVID. So he also divided all the people playing this strategy and it worked very well. And I think the third and final consequence is Brazil is that, well, when you have a populist president that that wants to jeopardize institutions, and the federal government here in the in the system is the the responsible for coordination, the coordination of all health policies. So coordination wasn't done, and so this damaged a lot of vaccination, a lot the local governments that need to f- receive money from the federal government to supply medicine to help people. And so I think uh, the the way the populace worked here in Brazil was very very prejudicial for. Uh, what happened in the pandemic. Well, that's the reason why we had so many losses of lives here. Thank you. And that that goes back to your earlier comment, Martin, about this link between health and the economy and how it's the opposite is true. That's right. When we know that health is a major driver of economic growth, it acts through a number of ways. First, a healthier population is more productive. Second, healthier workers are more likely to remain in the labor force, either uh, working more hours per week or not retiring early. Third, uh, the healthier people, particularly young people, are more likely to invest in their own education and therefore progress and become more productive. And fourth, healthier people are more likely to invest their savings because they're looking forward to a retirement and the savings that they invest then contributes to growth, particularly as small and medium enterprises. Now, that argument is now well well accepted by, for example, the European Union. It had a health is wealth uh, strategy in the 2000s. 
and by many others. And it has been also developed by the European Regional Office of WHO and the European Observatory into a strategy which uh, is based on the idea of mutually reinforcing investment in health, in health systems and in economic growth. All of them acting in a bi-directional way. Better health contributes to economic growth. Economic growth can contribute to better opportunities to be healthy and so on. So we're trying to create a virtuous cycle. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I just want to add something that, you know, on, on the lines that Martin said. So all those true uh, scientific findings, they were all blocked by fake news. There's something that I think we are missing here, and I don't have to say about social media. So because in Brazil, we had lots of lots of fake news saying the opposite. So we knew that that health or health labor, it's better. But the fake news spread the idea that the opposite was the, the true Everybody, every day, received lots and lots of messages. Um, so on to my final question, and it's a question about what we should do. How can we reduce the impact of populism on health? How, how, how can we help to, to move forward? Um, Alexandra? I think for the, the first thing is we really need to make sure that we revise our communication strategy. Uh, we need to recognize at least in the human rights defender area, that we have uh, not done a great job of, of arguing for human rights as a way of establishing a relationship between between constituencies and the government. Um, and so we, re we re really need to think of how people are living their health situations and what they are asking the government to do. And if that comes up as a delivery of universal, sensitive to differences, quality services that are there for all, uh, I think we, we would have a great gain. The other thing I think that is important is to talk about taxation. The problems, at least in Mexico and in Latin America with public services, is that taxation is hugely unpopular. The riches don't pay as much taxes as they should. The whole public discourse undermines the government delivery of services. And so people don't find a relationship between, you know, paying taxes and paying fair taxes and the delivery of quality services. Mexico is the worst country in Latin America for a collection of taxes. So, and that is going to become worse in terms of, of people's health. Um, and it always leaves uh, the more racialized communities and migrant communities having worse services than the rest. So I think I, if I would have to choose two, two policies, I would say communication of a rights-based approach in the relationship between the government and citizens and putting into the mix the taxation agenda that is key. Fantastic. Thank you. So communication and we'll focus on taxation. Martin? I absolutely agree with what Alexandra said about taxes. You know, we do know that progressive taxation is a major correlated driver of achieving universal health coverage and thus the sustainable development goals. I'm minded at a time like this to recall the quotation from Oliver Wendell Holmes, a U.S. Supreme Court justice, when he said that taxes are the price that we pay for civilization. I think from the public health community, we need to be determined to call out populism, to highlight the damage that it does to the health of everyone, and particularly to speak to those groups that the populist politicians are also speaking to, to, make the, to help them to understand 
that in fact it is often the people who are backing the populace who have created the disadvantage that they experience because many of these populist politicians are being funded by neoliberal billionaires and are working through the populist politicians to undermine the left-wing parties that would challenge their interests. So often we find ourselves in a situation that in public health we are told that we should not be political, but we allow other people to define what political means. And I, my hero, Rudolf Virchow, the, the pathologist who worked in the 19th century, was very clear when he was asked to investigate an outbreak of typhus in Silesia that it was the power of the aristocracy propped up by the church that was actually creating the conditions. He was not afraid to speak truth to power, and I think we should be as well. I think we also need to look at our mainstream political parties, and I'm going to compare two countries where the mainstream right-wing parties have moved in different ways. Whenever the Conservative Party in the United Kingdom was threatened from the right by the Brexit party, the um, party that wanted to leave the European Union, it shifted to the right to try to occupy that territory. It fired, it, it dismissed a number of members of parliament who were in the centre However, we're seeing now there's a rising support for the alternative for Deutschland, an extreme right-wing nationalist party, now gaining up to about 17% in the, some of the most recent polls, far more than it ever had before. But there, the Christian Democrats, the centre-right party, are appalled by this and have made it very clear that they will not move in that direction in any way. And of course, in Germany, they have a historical example to look to. So I think it's very important that centre-right parties resist any temptation to move to the right to occupy that territory, because that is where problems lie. The main tool we have is more democracy. And, with, when I'm, and I mean that we need more accountability. So, for instance... Populists are, they are on general blame avoiders. They are blaming all the old, all the other people. They are creating divides in um, the society. And so they can do that because the clear, the accountability is not clear. We don't know who is responsible for everything. We don't know who hold accountable, to held accountable. So I think we need to have more institutions that make clear who is responsible for everything. Uh, we need more stable rules about funding. So who is going to have supply the service must have money enough to do that. At the same time, what the, the role played by the central federal government must be clear too. And I think I, uh, I think the second thing I agree totally with Martin. I think we that work when, uh, on the health um, on the health world, we should also do some kind of politics, explain the importance of a system, a national system, how public policies are important, how they are important for the private sector, to people to make people be healthy, to live their lives, and so we must tell the message too. So if we don't do something else, we'll bring a different message and probably not a very good one. And I think my final uh, thought about that it comes to education. People are not educated to deal with so much information so fast. And I think so we have to think about information. Maybe I think uh, some kind of health policy should be done when people are in school, for instance. In the end of the day, we need more um more invest on education too, to make people more able to deal with this complete crazy world. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And thank you to all of you, to uh, Alexandra, Gustavo, Martin. 
Interrogating populism is essential to understanding racial inequities that we see today. And this is something that we really need to focus on. Health is political. So thank you to all of you. This episode was produced by Mita Hawk, Sofia Lobnov-Rostovsky and myself, editing by Gavin Cleaver and music by Mita Hawk. Do visit the Race and Health website on www.raceandhealth.org for more information about our academic work and to sign up for our newsletter. Thank you.